Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. The way to get rich looking brush strokes on your canvas, there's no two ways around it. You have to use a lot of paint. Paintbrushes have a million little hairs so they can hold a ton of paint, but most of us never push our materials to the limit. We don't know how much paint a brush can actually hold because we've never loaded one up. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast, the show where we talk with your favorite artists about how to get better at painting. I'm your host, Kelly Ann Powers. This is part two of my conversation with Sarah Sedwick. You'll learn about different types of edges and how to use them to make more interesting paintings. You'll discover how to make highlights that sing and the power of a good critique. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 22 for show notes and for part one. While you're there, add your name to the newsletter list to get each new episode sent straight to your inbox. And if you like the show, consider supporting it with a small monthly donation. Learn more at learntopaintpodcast.com slash support. All right, here we go. So then to set up a still life, you look through the viewfinder, you do a value study, and then you do the underpainting. What do you need to have figured out in that underpainting? For me now, the underpainting is just about transferring that composition to the canvas the way that I had planned it. That's not that easy. But before I started doing all this value studying and thumbnail sketching and planning, and you know, I I had those tools, I knew about those tools, but I wasn't really using them. But about four or five years ago when I started doing online mentoring and when my in-person teaching started to get more intense, I became so much more of a preparation nerd. And I will tell you, in the years since I've been doing things this way, painting in black and white a lot, thinking about composition a lot, planning my paintings, in the years since I've started doing it more methodically that way, I've probably created fewer paintings, but I've had a much higher success rate and I've been much happier with my own work and I've felt that I've improved from doing these these processes. But before I started really working this way, the underpainting was my value study. And that was one of its purposes. So its real purpose is to create this skeleton underneath the painting where you've got darker areas of paint underlying your darker passages of paint and you've got lighter canvas under your lighter passages. Because, you know, light travels through paint. And if you've got light canvas underneath your light paint, that's going to make it even more luminous. But years ago, I was doing this underpainting, pulling out. So I toned the canvas with a, a wash of color, thinned with Gamsol. It's about a mid-tone, but it's transparent. And then I'm pulling out lights and I'm putting in darks. It's like a charcoal drawing in that way. It's additive and subtractive. And the paint's really fluid. It's kind of like a whiteboard. There's no mistakes. It's my favorite. It's my favorite uh, phase of the painting because there's no mistakes. Everything's fluid. It can all be changed. And I used to use that part of the process as my value study. So I'd do the underpainting. I'd look at it and I'd say, do I like this? Is this working? The problem with that was if I didn't really like it, or I wasn't able to be as dispassionate about it as I am about something I've done on a separate surface. Because once you're working, you're on that canvas and you're working, you're like, I'm in the arena. This is, this is real now. I do not want to rub that out. I do not want to start over because I've already put all this work in on my 
painting. So in my workshops, once in a while, I will suggest to a student who's struggling with an underpainting, they should just wipe it off and start over because they're struggling too much. They should just start over. And the ones who go with me and do it come out with really good paintings. And the ones who resist me and they don't want to because they're attached and I totally understand, sometimes they'll continue to struggle throughout the whole painting. So a lot of times, and not just in the underpainting stage, but a lot of times the answer is to take some paint away. That helps us fix the problem. So it's another thing a palette knife is good for. If you're really struggling, if you're beating your head against the wall in an area of your painting at any stage, take the palette knife and just give it a couple scrapes and go back in. You're fighting the paint that's already there. But I digress. So people get attached to the underpainting. They don't want to make changes, including me. I know the psychology because it's mine, my psychology. I don't want to make changes in the underpainting. And so I want to do my preparatory studies on a separate canvas because I will, I will make big changes in a black and white oil painting. I don't feel like I have anything to lose. I'm not selling it. I hear you saying is that you've created a system where you sort of know these things that it takes to make a good painting, a visually powerful painting, and have then created space where you can focus on problem solving just that in a non-precious environment because like if you're trying to figure out what color is this orange but you've already put down an orange and you love that color and you've already spent 20 minutes on your canvas and like it's hard to go backwards but you have like Mm. delineated these things out so that you can say whatever this is a piece of paper I have I have nothing in this let's burn it you know it's not a you know whatever you're like (laughs) that there's like a power of keeping things not precious Yes. And that's a big thing that I recommend to students who are like nervous about even working. I say, okay, well, we got to find a way to break you out of this preciousness. Maybe you should try working on a surface that you aren't going to feel so scared to waste it. Problem with that is that then you're going to go be so relaxed. You're going to make the most amazing painting ever. And it's going to be on like an old piece of cardboard. (laughs) I've seen that happen so many times, but it's true. Like we have to let go of the anxiety in order to really enjoy the painting process. And the more we enjoy it, probably the better we're going to do. But breaking out of that preciousness is key. And so using materials that you aren't going to agonize over wasting, that's big. Where do you figure out your edges in your process? Throughout the entire thing. Yeah. Ideally, I guess it would start when I'm setting up the still life. I might go, ooh, ooh, there's like a really good opportunity for a lost edge. You know, keep that as I'm monkeying around with things. But mostly I'm discovering those opportunities as I'm doing either my value study or my underpainting. And I've even got like a little shorthand for myself in the underpainting for where I'm going to put a lost edge. Because, you know, you asked me about the purpose of an underpainting. And another purpose is you're leaving yourself little notes for how you're going to deal with things when you come back in color. When we're painting in color, we have a lot of balls in the air. There's a lot of things. And this is another reason I like to get a lot of the mixing out of the way beforehand. Because when we're actually painting, we're running like five programs in our head at once. And it's really overwhelming. And you aren't going to have the, you're not going to have the RAM to pay attention to every little thing. So yes, especially with my lost edges, I am locating those as I'm doing the underpainting and leaving myself a little note so that I won't forget to come back to it later the kinds of edges that we're looking for. There's three kinds of edges that I think about. Hard edges, soft edges, and lost edges. So we've talked a lot about lost edges already, and they're really critical to the look of my finished paintings that I'm going for. 
but hard edges, where where's a good place to put those? So one common issue with early painters, I think, is that they have too many hard edges, especially in the dark. So we see less detail in the dark. So if you're talking about painting in the shadow family, where the form shadow transitions into the cast shadow, maybe where an object is resting on its cast shadow, you're not probably wanting to put a hard edge there. But where the light is strong, so like where that orange is really bright and saturated and it's coming up against the background, maybe you do want to put a hard edge there. Where the light is strong, where contrast is strong, it's a good place for a hard edge. And also it kind of depends on the um, texture of the material, right? If it's metal or if it's paper and it's got that really crisp edge, maybe that orange doesn't get a hard edge even where it's brightest because it's turning and we want to we wanna round it, right? So a soft edge might help us turn the form. So if you locate your lost edges and you locate your hard edges, every other edge is some degree of soft. But not the same degree of soft. Possibly not. So I think about it with my still lifes in terms of star players and supporting characters. Where my focal point is, okay, and where you put your focal point on the picture plane, that's part of composition. Focal point is not subject by default, right? So if you're painting bowl of lemons, your focal point is not necessarily going to be that bowl of lemons. It depends where you put it. But focal point is a visual effect of contrast. It's created by strong contrast. So where your lightest light comes up against your darkest dark, that's probably where the viewer is going to look first. It's attractive. So put that in your bowl of lemons and then you've got to win. But what if you have other elements in that painting? Like I like to crop things. I like to have things scattered around the picture plane coming in and out. If I've got something that's going out of the top edge of my canvas and it's maybe it's more distant, I've got interesting things in the foreground, but that lemon that's going out of the top edge of my canvas, that's a supporting character. So it's definitely going to get really soft edges. And maybe I'll even say to myself, okay, how few brushstrokes can I paint this lemon in? Because it's really, it just needs to be there being lemony and not saying anything. It's an extra. So you decide that based on sort of the hierarchy of the painting. Definitely. Good way to put it. Hierarchy, that's a really good word, you know, and that applies to a lot of things. You've got a hierarchy of interest with your characters, and then you've got a hierarchy of values for sure, and that's critical. Looking at a, at a subject, looking at your underpainting, this is one of the things on my, my underpainting checklist that I run through with students. What's your lightest light and what's your darkest dark? Because, you know, paint has limitations, and one of the big ones is it doesn't get any lighter in value than titanium white, but nature can. Nature really can. So what if you're painting a white bowl and it's got a brilliant highlight on the rim? That brilliant highlight is the lightest light in the painting. So everything else has to be subservient to that or you'll never get that highlight to show up. That means that the light, the light white on that bowl that feels so bright to you, that's got to actually be far enough away from titanium white that you can get the highlight to sing. And that is a hierarchy. Yes. And it goes the other way from the darkest darks. And it's a tough thing to get, but once you get it, you have it forever. I imagine it's amazing to see that idea lock into place for a student. Oh my God, it's yes. pretty incredible. Yes. <laughs> yes. Oh, I love teaching. I miss it. I miss in-person teaching a lot. I'm going to be getting back into a little more of it soon. I taught a great Zoom workshop over the weekend. It was really, it was really fun. It was so cool to see everybody painting in their own spaces. So that is a question. From a learning standpoint, what are the benefits of online learning versus in-person learning? I'm glad you asked that because I have been doing a lot of online teaching. I've been doing, I have an art mentorship program, which is kind of like life coaching for artists, which I really, I never thought I would get into. And frankly, when I started doing it four or five years ago, I didn't 
really know how it was going to work or if it was going to work, but you know, it works. And it's really great, but it's different than in person because, you know, I never get to see my mentees painting. They see me painting and I certainly see a lot of their paintings. I talk to them about their paintings, but I don't ever see them painting. So it's a little harder to troubleshoot the problem. Whereas when I'm in a classroom watching students paint, I call it backseat painting. I'm walking around the room just watching what people are doing. You know, and sometimes I will even physically like take someone's arm and say, you hold the brush, I'm going to steer. And I will like put it on the canvas to show them, you know, just how hard am I touching the canvas with the brush? You know, this is what it feels like to make a brush stroke like I just did. So there's that. I get to see them painting. Big advantage. Online, you know, you get to be in your own painting space. You don't have to wear shoes. <laughs> and if we're talking about a video-based workshop, then you can go at your own pace and you can watch things over again and you can paint along with the instructor and pause it and, you know, really kind of go step by step like that. That's really awesome. Plus, you've got a front row seat at the demo, you know, and you can pause it whenever you want to. You don't have to sit through two hours of watching someone paint, which I love to do personally. And a lot of students I know they do too. But in person, there's a benefit that I've seen happen. And you want to talk about things clicking. It's beautiful. Students get so much out of watching the way the other students in the room handle the same problem they're tackling. It's like also what gear does that person have? How are they working? It's not just me. You know, they're learning from each other, which is pretty fantastic to see. But yeah, it really, um, me getting to watch and really clearly see how people are doing helps me help them, I think, a lot more. I had never thought about how in all the media, but maybe especially oil, like that physical interaction with the paint, not just how you're holding the brush, but how thick the paint is, how you lay it down, how often you lay it down, the movement mm -hmm. you're making. I mean, all of that, that uh, tactical stuff is so important. And like someone beginning may not even think the f how hard they push against the canvas can make a big difference, but boy, doesn't it. Okay, so last week I was having a conversation with one of my online students about this very thing, and she was saying to me, my paint is not going on richly, Sarah. It doesn't look like yours did. She had watched my demo, and then she tried to paint, a, she was painting a similar subject, someone I've been working with for years, and she said, why doesn't my paint look like yours? And so I, I like I said, I don't have the advantage of getting to watch her. I don't actually see what she's doing. I mean, she can send me a picture of her palette. I know what kind of brushes she's using. I know what kind of medium she's using, but I'm not watching the actual physical process. And the way to get rich looking brush strokes on your canvas, there's no two ways around it. You have to use a lot of paint. Paint brushes have a million little hairs so they can hold a ton of paint, but most of us never push our materials to the limit. We don't know how much paint a brush can actually hold because we've never loaded one up until it just couldn't hold anymore. And then when you do that, that's a really, and I don't mean like just scooping it up, just grabbing it because you might as well use a palette knife at that point. Like you really are working your brush back and forth, but so often I'll see students with like a beautiful pile of paint. They'll pull a little bit out onto the palette and they'll work their brush in it, paint, you go back to the palette and then they just go back into that little spot that they pulled down. They don't keep grabbing from the paint that they mixed. The more trips back to the palette you're making, the more paint you're going to bring to your canvas. Like the brush is not a magic wand. It's just a little dump truck that's meant to move paint from the palette to the canvas. So you've got one, two, maybe three brush strokes to put down and you're applying paint. Beyond that, you're probably either picking paint up or moving it around. So 
How many times are you touching the canvas in between trips back to the palette? That's huge. And I am thinking that that was probably my student's problem. Load the brush up more, like really a lot more than you think you should. It's a good practice once in a while to overdo it, just to, to see how far you can actually push it. I'm fond of saying that it's good to overwork a painting once in a while so we know what it feels like when we're overworking. And it's also good to stop way before we want to because most of us know how to overwork a painting and just beat our head against the wall for hours and kill it. But how many of us know how to stop while we're ahead? The timer is really good for that. But that gets off the point. You know, I think I, think I, I, think I covered it as far as how to have richness and a huge advantage of that opaque, thick, luscious paint is that it helps you when it comes to creating those edges that we talked about. How does the way you approach an edge change based on whether you want it to be hard, soft, or lost? Okay, so with a lost edge, I want to paint just back and forth. I want to paint the thing together, right? So let's say I've got two lemons and the light sides are overlapping and I'm going to make a lost edge. I want to paint it into itself. I want to paint it at the same time. It's not two lemons anymore. It's one big lumpy yellow shape. So I want to paint them together and then I can paint them apart, right? So whatever the contrast is that's separating them, let's say one of them has like it's darker, the back one is darker, right? So I will paint that darkness to show you the front one, but I've already painted that lost edge in one shape. So I just leave that. So painting back and forth across the edge. And then with soft edges, if I've got that rich paint on the canvas, then when I bring two areas together to create an edge, I definitely don't want to leave any gap. I want to massage the paint in those two areas right up and into. I want to paint these things into each other basically and work my edge back and forth. So I paint in the negative space and then maybe I have to go back in and paint the first thing again. And going back and forth like that is how I would create a soft edge. Now you could blend it. You know, you could take a clean soft brush and blend it. Once in a while, I'll use another brush, but mostly that's to like knock down a ridge of paint that's distracting. They catch the light in a weird way sometimes and they'll create a hard edge for you where you don't want one. But I am not blending. And I try not to blend as much as possible. Instead of blending, I'll put what I call a transitional brush stroke between two areas. If I've got too abrupt of a shift, let's say, between light and dark, then what I want is a transitional brush stroke of the midtone just laid over the top of those two. We talked earlier about layering wet paint on wet paint and how adding a little bit of medium, that solvent-free gel that I love, to the paint really helps me. So if I've got enough paint on my brush, I can lay down that transitional brush stroke, or I can lay down more paint on an edge, or wherever I want to put more paint, I can lay that down. It's like frosting a cupcake. You want to have enough frosting on the spatula so that you don't shred the cake up. you got to have enough paint on your brush, and if you use a little medium, you can put that paint right over the other wet paint without disturbing it too much but you only get one or two touches because the more you touch that canvas, then you're just going to be picking up paint, moving it around. And how to create a hard edge? Hard edges happen. They just kind of happen. It's almost like they make themselves and my job is to control them. Does that make sense? I don't think super consciously about how to make hard edges because they aren't that difficult. They just kind of happen. Well, then if someone came to you and said that they wanted to get really good at painting, what advice would you give them? Get a pencil and a sketchbook and start drawing. Now, I know I said the thing about specializing, so maybe that sounds hypocritical, but the best thing that you can do to improve your painting, if we're talking realistic representational painting, that's not painting, is drawing from life all the time. And over time, I think what happens is you start to draw in a painterly way, meaning you're not looking at lines, 
you're drawing with value shapes and that's what painting is too but really yeah if somebody wants to get better at painting i would say paint a lot every day if possible you know routines working something into your life to the point where it becomes routine and finding a place and a way that you can start to paint so that you're not having to start from scratch every time even if you can't have a dedicated studio in your house can do you have an area where you can leave your stuff set up because if you have to get your easel out and set it up and find all your paints and set them up and everything every time then it's really hard to get started so taking down the barriers to beginning that's huge because the more you paint the more you're going to improve and momentum is the most important thing when we're trying to be successful at anything I think you know and when I start feeling like I've lost my momentum which frankly I did go through that a little bit a few months out of this year battling some discouragement and and I I know other people around me were feeling the same way losing that momentum is really difficult when you're in the groove and you're painting regularly it's the kind of thing it's like exercise you know you get a little more fitness and then you feel better when you're exercising and then you're happier when you're doing it and you really creating a habit painting is the same way the more you paint the more you'll improve, the more improvement you see, the more rewarding it is. The thing, though, about plateaus, when we're studying anything, I mean, you're going to have rock star moments and you're going to have bad painting days. I really feel like if I have a bad painting day, it's okay. It's actually a good thing because it means I'm painting a lot. The more you paint, the more bad painting days you're going to have. So it's a good sign. It's a sign that I'm showing up consistently. When someone has lost that momentum... What advice do you have for getting back? Because it's so frustrating, especially if you've had it for a while, to not get stuck in the like, oh my gosh, I was at this point and now I'm not. That can feel kind of overwhelming. I guess, how did you get back into it? And then more so, how would you suggest advice to someone who had lost momentum and was trying to find it again? Take a class. Change of scenery. That's how I got out of it recently. I took myself on a little art retreat and, uh, you know, a lot of the time going and teaching workshops does this for me because, you know, I get burned out just being at home. So signing up for a class gets you out of your studio. It gets you out of your rut and exposes you to something new. And then, you know, I would go and teach a workshop and I would be painting with these other people, sharing group energy. It's that's also like exercise. It's another good parallel. You go to an exercise class, a yoga class, you're sharing that energy with everybody in the room. It feels really good. When you go and paint with other people, it's the same thing. You're sharing that creative energy and it feels really good. And I was getting that from in-person workshops. And then when that went away for a little bit, I didn't even realize that that's what I was missing. And I would also go to open studios. I would go to figure drawing sessions. I would go to open studio painting sessions here locally. So people could look for opportunities like that. Go take a workshop. You know, for me, teaching a workshop, taking a workshop, because I, I like to take workshops too. My goal is to do it once a year at least. And um, yeah, get around that group energy and shake yourself out of your comfort zone. That's a really good way to kickstart the stuff. You know, find a mentor. A lot of my students come to me lacking motivation and lacking accountability, but also, you know, maybe they don't have anybody in their life that they can talk to about art. And in my mentorship program, yeah, it's all virtual. I've met some of my mentees. Some of them come to me through in-person workshops. So they meet me in person first and then they sign up for the mentorship or vice versa. They'll do mentorship and then they'll come take a workshop. But most of them I've never met and they live all over the world. 
but they have a community with each other because they do get to hang out on a group Facebook page. And so they do see what each other is up to and they get to know each other a little bit over the months and a little bit more. And, and it's, it's really awesome. So it's not just teachers. It's like I mentioned earlier about being in a workshop and you, you learn so much by seeing the way the other students tackle the problem. Having other people around you in your life that you can talk about art with is incredibly motivating. You mentioned that critiquing was a big mm. part of what you got out of your college art education. And I guess, why is critiquing important? And then how does someone critique their own work? Is there sort of good ways to critique and bad ways to critique? That ties in really well with the thing about having other people to talk about art with. Critiquing and being the judge of your own work, that's a tough one. Like, I am not an incredibly good judge of my own work. I know when my work is garbage and needs to be destroyed, but above that, I don't know. I know what I like the most. The pieces of mine that I like the most tend to stay with me forever because nobody else agrees. The vast majority of my paintings fall somewhere into the kind of gray zone. I'm not super crazy about them, but they're not bad. They're, they're my work and someone's going to love them. So I don't sit around like judging my work and saying, well, I'm only going to put my very best work out there. I would probably look like a pretty different artist if I only put what I thought was my best work out there. So a little bit, we got to kind of trust. I'm not saying you should put everything out there. People should do what they feel comfortable with, first and foremost, as far as putting their work out there. But having someone else look at what you're doing can be, someone you trust, it can be incredibly valuable. So in my in-person workshops, critiques are a big part of the day. And people don't necessarily know that coming in and then they get a little bit freaked out sometimes because people have these internal scars from critiques past. They do. I was an illustration major in art school. And basically all we did in our studio classes was critique. You did your work outside of class, you brought it in, put it on the wall, and then we'd spend three hours talking about it. That was huge for me. You know, I never worked a day in my life as a commercial illustrator, but learning how to look at work and talk about it, talk about my own work and other people's was huge. And so in my workshops, students will admit to me, you know, oh, I, someone said something to me when I was in high school and I've never forgotten it and I'm, I'm afraid of critiques and, but it's not like that. It's a chance to put all our work up on the wall together. You can see everyone's work at once. And it's just a chance to kind of step back and get that distance and students tend to not get as much out of what I say about their own piece because I've been talking to them about their own piece all day. What they get to hear is what I say about the other people's work. They can kind of mull that over and take it into the next day because whatever their opinion is about what the other students did, they get to hear mine then. And I will say that I'm very, very kind. No one's ever cried during one of my critiques. The word implies criticism, right? That's not what's happening. I'm pointing out what's working. I'm pointing out what I like about it. Maybe I'm having a psychological reaction to what's going on. I'll share that. Yes, if there's something that I think could make the painting better, I'm going to point that out. But really, I would like to break down this, this fear factor around critiques. <laughs> That's not the point of them. It's so often in painting, I feel like, as someone's painting, there's a lot of just like feelings about their work but they're not necessarily clear. They haven't necessarily put edges around them and turned them into a word and then turned them into an opinion and then, heaven forbid, say that opinion out loud. But you have to be able to do that to get to the point of saying, like, 
this value contrast isn't high enough. That's why your eye is not coming here first. Like that's a lot of ability steps to be able to get to a point where you can actually fix something and make it stronger. And it sounds like exactly. that's what critique gives you is the ability to learn how to say those things in a way that's like practical. Absolutely. Yes. And so for the first two days of my workshops, really the only person that talks during critiques is me. And then on the last day, I give people a chance to talk about their own piece before I talk about it because they've already been listening to me talk about work for two days. And I, I really like hearing what they say. How to improve our work and, and looking at the work all together. It's big. A lot of people that work with me are interested in discovering their personal style. And I believe that you are not going to escape your unique artistic fingerprint no matter how hard you try. You need to embrace it. And when people are talking about I need to find my style, what they're saying is I want to know what my fingerprint is. So just like you can't get a fingerprint record without actually putting your fingers in the ink, like you can't find your artistic fingerprint without making a lot of work. And then you step back and you look at it and maybe someone else can see it before you can. This is one of the things I love about working with my mentees, right? If they stay with me, some of them stay with me for years. You know, sometimes it's a month. Literally, I have people who've been with me for more than two years. And you really can see people evolve and you can see their style blossom. So you have to make the work and then you could look at it. And that's a really big reason that I like doing gallery shows because it lets me kind of see a whole year's worth of work together in one spot and I can see where I've been and I can maybe see where I want to go. I can see where I am. It's cool. But one thing about this day and age is that we have so much access to so much art. Back when I was in art school, it was like the art books, these huge art books that were so big you couldn't even take them out of the library. That was the thing. But nowadays, we have access to everything out there on the internet, and we're just inundated with art, those of us who like looking at it. We see it all the time, and we know what we like. But do we know why we like it? And do we know how to get that thing that we like and bring it into our own work? That's big. So it's like, we're looking at art, we love art, but can we use that part of our practice to make ourselves more like ourselves? It's not stealing. That's what we do out here as artists. You know, we look at stuff, we visually integrate and we, we suck it in like amoebas, you know, and turn it into part of ourselves. But as far as critiquing your own work, it is important. It's important to be able to be objective about your own work, but that's difficult. Like I said, I can tell when my work is garbage and usually that's like an internal feeling. It's just not okay in here. But as far as like the decision to scrape something off, the decision to nuke and pave, as I say, I don't make that too hastily. Okay, so if I think that this painting is terrible, I'm probably going to give it a night. Now, I wouldn't end a painting day and go, oh my God, this is terrible. Scrape it and leave the studio. I would say... I'm going to give this a rest and I'm going to come back tomorrow or I'll take a picture of it and I'll go look at it elsewhere. You know, you want to get yourself away from it. And that's why phones are so great. You know, you can sit in your studio and stare at your painting. I like to take a picture and look at it elsewhere so that I'm not in danger of actually messing with the painting while I'm looking at it. Give yourself that chance to kind of evaluate in a neutral place. <laughs> now, most of the time when I am giving something that night long time out, it's not a good sign. It means it's probably on the chopping block, but you never know. Sometimes the elves fix it in the night. And I do say this to students all the time in workshops. Like, maybe you don't love this now, but I think this is the kind of painting that in two weeks you're going to look at and go, wow, I did that. That happens. You know, things get better over time. We're so close to a piece when we finish it where we almost can't see it anymore. 
That's so true. Just the power of distance, just a little bit of distance is pretty incredible. I hope that my technique is not set in stone. You know, I've been doing things this way for a few years now, but every once in a while, something will come along that will rock the boat and then get in the boat and become part of the process. And I want to stay open to that. You know, beginner's mind is a super precious thing. And that's one of the reasons that I need to teach and that I love teaching is because I love being around painters at every stage in their art journey. And I never want to get so calcified that I can't bring in a new piece when it comes along. So stay open. You can learn more about Sarah Sedwick, including her classes at sarahsedwick.com. Thank you so much for joining me today, Sarah. I really enjoyed it, Kelly. Thanks a lot. Thank you for joining me this week on the podcast. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode 22 for show notes and for part one. While you're there, add your name to the newsletter list and get each new episode sent straight to your inbox. And if you like the show, consider supporting it. Learn more at learntopaintpodcast.com slash support. All right. Happy painting.